Hey, welcome back to the IA podcast. Hugo here. In this episode, I'm talking to Bisha Tabar, who is currently a master's student at the Graduate School of Design in Columbia, New York City. In this episode, we cover some of the ins and outs of uh, Bisha's daily life as a student there, um, but also we talk about his growing passion for photography and uh, some projects he's undertaking back home in Jordan. Enjoy. Hey, Bisha. Hey, Hugo. How's it going? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for thanks for giving me some of your time today. Glad to do it. So you're in you're in New York City at the moment. Yeah. So over the past few months, I've been working on a couple of projects, um, some architecture, some photography. Um, so the latest photography one that I've been working on. Um, so do you know William White's study of the Seagram Building? Yeah. The Seagram. The the yeah. the video footage studying people's behaviors. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. So back in March, I think, or April, um, I was looking at that and I wanted to see how much it would change during this time because of the pandemic and was during the lockdown and everything. Um, so I just went to the Seagram and started taking pictures. It was completely empty. There were like just a couple of people there. Um, and then after that like photo shoot, um, I got inspired to extend this into a series, which is called uh, The Socially Distant Life in Smaller Urban Spaces, mm-hmm. which sees how, how people's behavior changes in these small parks and all of the public spaces in New York. Mm. I've been working on that recently. It's a fantastic idea. Um, actually, I don't know if you've heard, but Aarhus School of Architecture has a photograph of the year competition. And... It's it's kind of funny because um, it's uh, I would never have expected Aarhus being you know a small Danish school to have this kind of international photograph competition that gets applicants from all around the world. Um, and I looked at the brief the other day, thinking you know maybe I should give myself a goal with the photo with the photos I'm taking. And it's it's um, it's the 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 brief is to explore s- changes in uh, urban spaces. Um, or spaces in general, architectural spaces, uh, during quarantine and during social distancing. So if you haven't already checked it out, I mean, you should, if you want to, uh, you should 100% send some of some of your collection along. Um, I've seen I've seen the ones of the circle outline spaces in a park that you uploaded recently. Yeah, Domino Park in Brooklyn. Yeah, that alone is stunning. I think the uh, for the application, you can send in five photos, so it can be a series of really strong uh, images. But you do, do definitely. Um, but so you've just been hanging out in New York since the end of uh, yeah. well, the end of the school semester, but also just during quarantine. Yeah, because anyway, Jordan's border, borders were closed most of the time. There's they still are actually, um, and I've been I never really had the chance to be in New York and not be in school or not have so much work to do. Hmm. Um, so I've been kind of exploring the city at my pace, going around photographing things like, or neighborhoods or buildings that I didn't get the chance to see. Hmm. There are a few like architecture uh, jobs here and there. Yeah. Sweet. I um. So I need to try and structure these talks a bit more. The previous uh, podcast episodes I've been uh, doing, I've tried to just let the conversations be free flowing, um, and I think that is the, the right way to go. But I thought 
Um, for sake of clarity, it would be great to get you to do uh, just an introduction, um, starting yeah. starting from you know where you're originally from, how we ended up meeting in London. Um, obviously, we we crossed over at some stage, but since then you've uh, gone off on a totally different path, and that's uh, the one I want to ask you about today. And then um, I have some kind of um, I have some some uh, things I'd like to ask just about how it's been at Columbia at the Graduate School of Design, um, culturally, but you know academically, and then also about. Um, your photography and the magazine that I think you're involved with to some extent and yeah. uh, the exhibition you did, was it last year or the year before? Yeah, it was last year. Yeah. So that's where I want to get to. But if we can, if you don't mind, if we can start just uh, by you introducing uh, your life in architectural terms so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so my name is Michelle Tabba and I grew up in Amman, Jordan. And after um, after graduating high school, I attended the foundation year at the AA, and then went on to do my BA at University of Westminster, where we met. Um, after that, I was kind of more interested in the academics and the pedagogy in the U.S. And after that, after graduating from Westminster, I worked in Shelton Mandela, New York, for one year, and I really did like. Uh, like the ongoing discourse of architecture here, which is kind of different than some universities in England. Mm. I used to visit Columbia a lot, attend some lectures, and that was kind of a drive for me to come here. Um, after finishing for one year in New York, I went back to Jordan. Um, there was a sense that I'm learning a lot about architecture, but there is not so much that I know about my home country in terms of arch architecturally and urban planning and all of that. Um, so I spent one year back in Jordan and I did a few projects, um, just working independently. Um, and then one of the projects that I was working on, which is the Earth Chair, was exhibited at Amman Design Week. Um, it was, it's basically, the idea behind it is that I want to encourage people to reconsider the use of earth, clay, and traditional building materials and becoming mainstream because it was part of our culture. It's better for the environment. It's essentially zero, it has zero embodied energy. Um, so that was what I presented at Hamman Design Week. And then I went to, I came to GSA. Um, I did my first year and now I'm entering the second year. You have three to do total, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I've spoken, I've spoken to Jules a little bit about his projects at uh, GSAP. And yeah. so, so I have an idea about the structure more or less in terms of, is it, uh, what is it? Three semesters of um, cores and then three yeah. of, um, you know, specialized or yeah, whatever. Um, what have you, what have you been looking at this year in your studies scale wise and, and thematically? Yeah, so for the first project, um, it was a year-wide project where we looked at a semester-wide project where the entire studio, the entire year actually, looked at Broadway. And it was uh, segmented into like, um, I think, 15 or 20 blocks for each studio. Um, ours, were, ours was uh, the area near Flatiron. 
So my project was, so Flatire, Madison Square Park, and Union Square Park are used throughout the year a lot. Um, but during the winter, their usage is not so much. It's a bit too cold for hanging out outside. And there was a lot of empty lots that were in that area. So my proposal was to have a winter sculpture garden, just to be a kind of a public space to serve during the winter season. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second project, which is the second semester, was pretty cool. Um, so in the East Village, there is a school that has a lot of history. It's culturally very significant to the East Village. Um, Spike Lee used to film there. Um, it was kind of a space for artists after becoming, after um, like a certain period of time where it didn't um, it stopped being a school. Mm. It became a for artists and um, a lot of people in that area to use. And then a developer bought it. And now our proposal is to um, to make it into a school again, but with each with each studio focusing on different aspect. So my studio was focusing on its embodied energy, which okay. is something I'm interested in. And we preserved because seventy percent of the embodied energy of a building is preserved in the structure. So our core focus was trying to preserve as much of the structure as possible. Mm -hmm. And um, fit in new programs that are catered to 21st century needs of education, such as the flipped classroom and so on. Mm. Uh, so my proposal was a set of trays where each classroom has a farming uh, like planter in front of it. Um, and it encourages people, it encourages farming at a very early age. And the school will be totally self-sustainable in terms of um, food, um, energy, water, um, and all of that. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, how, how, uh, how's this first year compared to what you expected coming to New York and coming to Columbia, totally different system, and I guess a very international group of people to be with, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very international, um, and it's really interesting because Colombia is famous for, uh, I wouldn't say famous for, but a lot of my history and theory professors are teaching us to look at things critically. So, mm -hmm. um, for example, Corbusier, Mies, all of those guys, all of the modernists were revered not so long ago. And now we're kind of seeing that hmm, maybe there is there was something that wasn't great with their approach, and we're just learning to deal with the mistakes that modernism did, yeah, and modern, and see how we can learn from them. Yeah. Um, so your yeah. teachers, your teachers have really encouraged you to, um, I guess, re-examine what people consider just unquestionable, right? Yeah. Is that an environment you like being in? Because from my own experience, it is exciting, but it's also difficult to be um, questioning fundamentals as well as trying to be creative because you lose all the walls of your room and you're trying to put a roof on it and there's nothing for it to yeah. stand on in a way. 
Yeah, exactly. It is it is weird. My professor Mark Wigley used to always tell us that the people that we're reading and all of these guys, they might not know what they're doing. Yeah. Like just maybe just like you and me, we're they're just writing their manifestos and some like got published a lot and that's why people are still reading it. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that they're correct. And it doesn't mean that their work or their manifestos still apply fifty, sixty or hundred years later. Yeah. Has um has your perspective shifted quite a lot this semester or this past year? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. For the better? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, I uh, that's such a stupid question. Shifting's always a good thing, even even if it's, you know, a contrast yeah. to what you had before. Um but uh so let's talk about your photography. You kind of kick started that uh I guess four or five years ago. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. I have a I have a very vivid memory of um, a school trip we did to Amsterdam, and we did a day trip to Rotterdam. And yeah. two things: I think we were both we both signed up for the gym uh, yeah. for one for one evening. We sort of you know b- blagged our way into them giving us a free day or a free session. Uh, and then the next day, um, we we rented bicycles. I think yeah. I was that's a very vivid memory because I think that changed. That changed my perspective on a lot of things in a very sort of, you know, uh, in a very sort of simple way. Cycling around Amsterdam just made me fall in love with that style of living in cities and led me to apply to Copenhagen. Um, But I also remember going to Rotterdam for the day and you bringing your tripod and like religiously setting up these frames and using ND filters and basically, you know, basically taking pro pictures and up until that point i had thought that you know this was something that i was you know relatively informed about and um since then your photographs have just uh, gone from strength to strength and it's now kind of part of part of your architectural um education right yeah uh, definitely it does shape everything i do so what got you into it uh how do you think it's driven um, your your way of seeing architecture, your way of seeing space, aesthetics, colors. I think the thing is, um, when I got to London, there was just a, such an eagerness to know the city yeah. and explore everything about it. So I think that was kind of my drive to just get my camera, go around the city, um, and explore things. And I just started photographing buildings, city uh, buildings, people, uh, public spaces, um, that sort of thing. And then it just kind of led to one thing to another. And it kind of became something professional that I do now. Yeah. yeah just um, flicking through your feed, it's incredible. Um, it's such a diversity. A lot of people have on Instagram, you know, these days, photography is quite an accessible thing. A lot of people have nice photos. But... Um, it's hard to tell with with your stream and with your kind of uh, your collection of work so far how how curated it is and how um, post produced it is because it all looks very seamless and the color grading is very natural and almost too smooth. It's so smooth, you it looks like it's just straight off the camera, but it's still very very um, eye catching and the contrasts are, you know uh, still um where they need to be but uh how how curated is it really um the feed or the pictures themselves um let's let's say the feed the feed um i 
usually tend to, for example, if I'm if I took a trip somewhere that's in the mountains or somewhere near the beach, I would try to really under uh, like showcase what I saw, whether it's the buildings, the beaches, the nature, because everything is really connected. Mm. Both people affect the their urban environment and vice versa. Yeah. So when I try to go see a space, see a space or see a city, I try to capture all of these things. And I think they just connect and make a story together. Right. Because I, I yeah, I think I missed making that remark. There's there's a sort of um a nice flick between scales as well. So the close up detail, the sort of highly contrasted light play, and then the more overall. I think details are kind of nerdy and specific to architecture and I think pretty beautiful because they display, you know, um, light and texture in a, in a kind of obvious way. But I always, in my own photographs, I find it really difficult to get a good, um, a good overall picture. If you're trying yeah. to just show a space in its entirety, because there'll be so much going on, it's hard to dictate a hierarchy in the same way. Um, or yeah. con- control it all, especially because it's you know multiple exposures are probably going on, and um, it's something that I, I feel like you've been working on quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, because like Instagram, it's it's usually you're flicking through like hundreds of photos every second, and some of them are just like one big shot picture, like something that's huge or like a something Instagrammable, if you want to say that. Yeah. Uh, but I'm kind of more interested in the things that, okay, if I'm, for example, if I'm going to say, do a picture that Guggenheim, there's the famous picture that everyone takes from oh. um, the center of the atrium, I'm just looking up. And you see these pictures everywhere. But, and it's very Instagrammable, but there's more to the building than just one picture. There's, it tells a story. So, do you do you think uh, f- for each of the like uh, for each of the projects that you go and photograph? Because you do, I seem to remember you do sort of do these pilgrimages. You'll you'll go to a place and you'll spend a time looking looking around it, photographing from different angles. Do you think do you think it's fair to say you need a collection of photographs to really encompass uh, a piece of architecture, or can it be done in a single shot sometimes? Um, no, I think it's very difficult to really encompass a building in one shot uh-huh. and photographing a building maybe um, I usually go at different times during the day because there is really a different experience when you visit the building at different times during the day or during like different seasons um, the light quality is different uh, the people interacting with the building is different um, so for example I shot the Sugar Hill apartments this last couple of weeks ago. Um, and I went, I think, three or four different times each at a different, like once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once in the, in the blue hour, and sometime before the sunset. Mm. And I guess then you get an overall picture of it. Do you think, do you think, because um, you never struck me as. Um, like a forcefully theoretical architect it you know i think uh, f- the little the little that i got to work with you i i got the feeling that um 
you weren't in obsessive to the same degree that some people are about, you know, learning the, the historical facts. But it seems like through photography and through visiting buildings to understand them and experience them, you've maybe uh, gained that knowledge anyway and gained that kind of um, historic understanding. Is that, would you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not just through photography. Like sometimes I go to buildings, um, I talk to, if it's a, if it's a housing project or um something that people inhabit or live in i speak to the residents what they might think of the building what they might do differently hmm. they were the architect yeah do you do you notice do you notice different things do you think when you have a camera on you or does that distract you from just absorbing like a given atmosphere with no with no pressure to take photographs sometimes um yeah, because it's actually pretty like tempting to just go and just take the first picture. But mm. I usually just walk around, walk around, explore the space, see what, what interests me. And then mm. what captures the space and like what, what really captures its identity as a space. So you've uh, started doing it professionally. What kind of work will, have you done so far? Um, so my first independent project was a renovation for an interior store in Amman called yeah. the Creation One. And it was it was a challenging project because it was my first one that I'm taking alone. It was it had a very tight budget, very tight time with timeline. Um, it was just me who was working. I had to be the designer, the architect, um, the construction manager, the project manager, the contractor. I had to take all of these roles was pretty challenging especially with the like tight budget and all and a lot of things were i'd say actually almost everything was custom design so it was such a huge learning curve and i really enjoyed that project um and then i got a few projects from the earth chair people were became interested in, in building earth houses mm. One project, it was kind of, it was put to a halt just because of the coronavirus and everything. Yeah. Um, I recently entered the competition with my girlfriend, who's also an architect. Yeah. Um, it was a, an arc sanctuary in Abu Dhabi. Golly. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it was an interesting project. It was um, just ecologies, um, different sizes for tourists who are interested in seeing the desert and the empty quarter yeah and it had to be self-sustaining in terms of energy uh water um because it's in it's basically in the middle of the desert so they're they're not connected to any like major infrastructure such as pipelines yeah is that the kind of project that ends up requiring a lot of kind of high-tech solutions or did you try to be more um sort of uh um what's the word sort of rudimentary and using old kind of uh, old. It was actually a mix of both. Okay. Because it's e it's easy to get caught in the high technology and like um, just using such advanced technology, but I'm always interested in challenging it. And if there's something we can do that's low tech, then why not do it? Mm -hmm. And so the form of the space was actually achieved by uh, wind direction 
and seeing how we can harvest the wind to create um, a pleasant environment in such a harsh uh, in such a harsh climate. Yeah, and that it also had some high tech solutions such as the 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 enclosure of the building was a mixture between matting, which is a traditional um, fabric. It was mixed with um, solar harvesting fabric. Okay. So that's how energy got um, harvested in the building. Awesome. Is that the first open competition you've taken part in? Yeah. Sick. Good for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yet to do one. I remember thinking in my second year of um, being an intern, uh, part one placement, I remember thinking, you know, I'll do these. I'll do it on the weekend. I have loads of free time. This is going to be, you know, this is this is going to be great. And you hear about all sorts of people that enter competition after competition. And I, anyway, I never ended up doing it. And uh, I'm I'm not sure that I will before I actually graduate as an architect. <laughs> At which point they'll become crucial. It's just very time-consuming. Yeah. Uh, do you plan on doing a lot more? Um, I'm not sure. Um, competitions are hardly debated just because. Like the, they benefit off of a lot of free labor. They're mm. just asking a lot of people to submit all of the projects, and most of the projects don't get compensated either financially or yeah. marketing or anything. Yeah. So you kind of have to choose the competitions you want to enter. Do you think? I mean, yeah, they're definitely playing off of uh, goodwill and I guess ambitious people trying to add to their portfolio, but. Uh, Maybe it's worth doing it just for that, right? It sort of forces you to uh, do a you know a micro a micro project in a short space of time and just put it out there and yeah, exactly. Especially with the, the current economic crisis that we're having. Yeah, it, yeah. It's not a bad idea to just put yourself out there. Yeah. Um. So this summer you haven't uh, been working in a firm, right? Yeah. Was the last time you worked um, in practice, I guess, uh, f for other people before you started Columbia and before you went back to Jordan? So almost two years ago, three years ago? Yeah, almost three years ago. Wow. And do you imagine that in two years, once you're, once you're done, you'll return to sort of traditional architectural practice working for someone else? Or do you hope to spend the, the time before that point nurturing your own projects and... Uh, it was on my mind um, because I learned so much just working by myself and working with like uh, because when I'm working by myself I'm it's not actually by myself I'm working with a lot of um, fabricators engineers all of that and to really get the hands-on experience that you wouldn't normally get in a in a, a typical office yeah um, but there's still some a lot of advantages advantages in terms of organizing a team and just the general structure, because when I plan to open my own office back in Jordan, yeah. I would have experience organizing teams and taking on large scale projects if, if I have to. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say when you start up your office back in Jordan, do you think, do you think that's, that's uh, uh, an absolute, the yeah, idea of the returning? Really? Um, why is that? Um, I feel there is such a need to change the, change the perspective of how architecture is perceived in Arab countries. Unfortunately, there is the trend of Dubaization, which is just following what Dubai is doing. And Dubai is already following a, 
already pre-outdated model of Western urbanism and architecture. So there is a need to shift that. There's cultural needs, environmental needs, um, social needs. Um, so I do feel I have a responsibility to, to at least contribute to, to change how architecture is in, in my mm. country. That's really interesting. Um, do you think coming back, or have you noticed so far when you go back to Jordan that having a um, a foreign training, so first in the UK at two schools and then in, in New York, does that give you um, a, a more valuable brand or a more interesting sort of uh, profile? Yeah, actually it, it does. And it's not always a good thing because there's a lot of good universities back home yeah. And like the German Jordan University is really good, the Sharjah University in, in the UAE is really good, but there is always a fascination of the West, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, someone graduates from Colombia, oh, he must be really good, but that's not always the case. And yeah. I don't want to be just because I graduated from Colombia. Right. Uh, I want to get the job. It's a useful. There's... It's a useful thing to have, or it's a useful card to have in your deck, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any other Jordanians in Colombia that you've come across so far? Yeah, actually, one of my close friends was with me in kindergarten, and she was in high school, and now she's doing the CCC program, which is a critical curatorial studies. Okay. At, um, there's my actually my girlfriend's gonna be doing the AAD program next year. Uh -huh. So we're going to have two Jordanians in the MR program. F fantastic. Um, I guess that segues on to, you know, what it's been like uh, socially and culturally uh, being in New York, because we've all read, you know, and seen movies uh, about what it's like living in New York, you know, insomniac city, delirious New York. But um, you've been working pretty damn hard the last year. So have you had time to... Have, did you have time before the end of the summer semester to, you know, really take it all in? Well, the second semester was kind of pretty short because everything closed down in March. So we only had one month and a half or a couple of months. But there was still so much going on, cultural events, um, architecture events. Um, there was an opening for Arab um, mid-century abstract Arab artists. Mm -hmm. You. It was a pretty cool event, uh, highlighting Arab artists. Yeah. Um, there's just always something going on, so I try to participate in whatever I could. Yeah. What? Um. It's a kind of mundane question, but I think it's still interesting once you ask it to enough people, so that you can compare and contrast. What is what does an average day look like pre-quarantine, uh, in terms of school schedule and lectures, etc. Um, so I usually wake up very early in the morning, like, uh, I would say six. Yeah. Go to the gym, um, have breakfast, and then start working at 9 a.m. Mm -hmm. If it's a lecture, I go to the lecture, and if it's just studio work, um, I might work at home or at the studio. And then just continue working on to like maybe 10 p.m. Um, whether it's lectures, readings, studio work, and then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty intense. And then re yeah. re repeat. 
but so you're getting the gym in and uh do you get do you walk to school you're very close because you're on the kind of lower harlem upper west side right yeah it's like a 10 15 minute walk from here yeah okay so you get that moment just to sort of take a deep breath and you know yeah let the yeah for me it's not like a it's not like a marathon it's just like a constant thing i really enjoy it yeah and it's not I'm sprinting to to just finish the semester. Yeah. If you take it, if you just don't put too much pressure on yourself, you're not gonna feel overwhelmed. Hmm. It sounds like you've got a very balanced attitude to it. Um, I think so. How's how's the studio culture, and how would you compare it to the AA and Westminster Uni? How much do you how much do you you know um cross paths with other students in your class and what what benefit do you get from each other i think what's really cool here is that each one has a dedicated desk so you come you become really close to the people working around you in the studio and you bounce off ideas of each other all the time um and first year studio is like it's very close-knit the space itself and the students together. Um, so there's always an exchange of ideas. There's always something interesting that's going on, especially if two studios are focusing on completely different things, you might be able to benefit from something that's not looked at in your studio the same way. Hmm. And at Westminster, we didn't really have dedicated desks. No, not so, at all. Yeah. They, they still don't. By the way, none of the master's students have dedicated desks. Even masters? Yeah, even masters. I know. I it's think funny. That's... Yeah, I mean, I've noticed the same thing. I'm, I feel so privileged uh, to have just a desk that is mine. I can load stuff onto it, and I can kind of settle down into it every day. And um, there's something about it. I mean, it's mini architecture, right? You have your little space, and then you have your neighbor, and then you develop like little communities within that sitting group, and then you know yeah. you have these clusters. It's fantastic, and it. I don't know. I don't. I would. Uh, I would resent not having that stability at this point. For, for now, they're trying their best to make sure that even with COVID and everything that's going on, we would still have our dedicated desks. Okay. Yeah. So you're um they're they're hoping to send you back to school uh as per usual, right? In September? Um we're it's a hybrid program where the I think the lectures are gonna be um remote. Yeah. And some studio classes are gonna be in person. Hmm. It's kind of interesting because I mean we're talking about what we appreciate in studios and um then again this whole quarantine has forced us to be at home. And we're trying to sort of point out where the value is in not being in the space. And a lot of people would yeah. say, oh, well, you know, there are so many advantages. Um, meanwhile, you, you know, I remember people telling me in internships two or three years ago, people would say, you know, make sure you're in studio as much as possible. Get as much as you can off people in your master's degree. Um, that'll contribute so much to your overall learning progress. Um, and then suddenly now we're, we're in a position where we're, you know, trying to rinse uh, rinse, produce water from a dry cloth and find value in essentially staring at a computer screen to two or three times a day. Uh, yeah. we got, we got a really intimidating email at the beginning of our 
quarantine semester saying, guys, we're all about emerging sustainable forms of architecture and architectural practice. And we're going to use this change of scene as uh, an opportunity to, um, you know, uh, transform the role of the architect. And we're all like, oh, God, that means, you know, we'll have no excuses when things start going wrong uh, because of the format. Do you, um, we talk about sustainability a lot in our program and it's, it's a sort of dangerous terminology as you can imagine, because it's, it's so overused and has been diluted down so heavily. It's, it's sort of in, in this buzzword, um, sort of top 10, uh, all firms use it and all magazines like to label, uh, projects using it, um, sort of greenwashing, I guess. But now that I'm in the studio, we, um, I've sort of had to develop a, a critical attitude towards it. And we look at social sustainability, I think, um, and historical sort of significance in, in uh, contemporary architecture and then how you, how you would go about creating something, a, a future vernacular or a new type of architecture. Um, how, do, how do you guys discuss issues relating to sustainability? Um, well, in my previous year, it was something that was heavily focused on everyone kind of picked one thing to focus on like um, a student focused on the restoring previous wetlands in in that area because these villages villages prone to a lot of flooding Um, so how would they benefit from that Um, we have a very um, published and uh, a great professor in our school. His name is David Benjamin. Mm-hmm. He published recently on embodied energy, which I think is going to be one of the main, um, like I would say, um, sort of talking, talking points. points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or factors that are going to play such a huge role in 21st uh, century architecture. Yeah. Because although people are moving towards sustainable and energy efficient buildings and lead certified on all of these certifications but what embodied energy is doing is it's increasing the the energy that's used in the construction of the building mm. so for example um i can't remember the statistics the statistics exactly um so i think it was 40 percent um of of the energy, yeah, yeah, okay. So previously, before all of the sustainability talk, mm. the embodied energy to account to 10% of the lifetime's energy of a building, mm-hmm. and now it's 40%. So while a building may be net zero or energy efficient, mm. uh, technologies that they used, such as like high-tech uh, glass and high-tech windows and high-tech insulation, these actually lead to a higher energy consumption throughout the life of the building. Yeah, exactly. Wait, through, through, throughout the process, because there's the two kinds, right? There's the uh, embodied energy, uh, or sorry, embodied energy, is that the overall carbon footprint of a building in production and lifetime, or is it just the production? Um, I think it's, um, I think it's, just production just the production because we've always focused on production right at least as long as the kind of papers have been discussing sustainability and construction uh openly but 
a, a big part of these certificates is is um is addressing performance right and how much energy buildings will uh, require uh to 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 stay around, whether it's like performance based, so just you know, um, interior internal climate, uh, climate, or um, you know, uh, resource kind of consumption, so electricity, energy, whatever, but also just to do with material um, um, restoration in fifty, sixty years and lifespan of of those of those particular. Uh, materials, right? So this professor, he's he's talking specifically about the production phase. Yeah. Okay, and that's the area that you're most interested in too. Yeah, because it's it's kind of tricky to say. Well, this building is very energy efficient, but overall, it did over its lifetime, it did consume more energy than uh, not sustainable building. Yeah. What's what's cool about that is, as far as I understand it, if if you focus on embodied energy, then um, reusing existing structures becomes really really important, right? Yeah. Because you don't want to uh, essentially waste uh, a building, you know, a big concrete prefab building's uh, embodied energy. Yeah, exactly. To a lot of culture energy, which is just using what the local materials uh, are available and local like uh, crafts and yeah. um, whatnot. So I think it, it also ties into the in improving or in reassuring the identity of a space or a city. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point, like the whole uh, sort of cultural value that's embedded in a building. It, it's funny because it doesn't really matter if it's, you know, a, a 17th century um, European uh you know, a uh, town hall or a, uh, a Berlin prefab uh, high rise, they all carry with them. So yeah, the material embodied uh, carbon, but also this sort of cultural, cultural uh, heritage, essentially. And it's neither good nor bad in a lot of cases. Most people would argue it's good because it's a memory of some kind. But that is that's certainly um, an angle that I'm hoping to pursue further in the coming year and potentially beyond that um sort of trying to acknowledge um the nostalgia and the well the culture and the sort of embedded um identity that a lot of these older buildings have um and for a lot of people who think they're ugly or who think because objectively they would be correct in thinking they don't perform that well for a lot of people that's a reason to destroy them but if you can sell them on the almost the sensationalist the sort of more frivolous idea that you know this this body mirrors, or sorry, this 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 building mirrors part of part of their culture, the the history of the place that they're in. Then it, it might be easier to, you know, sway their opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, is New York full of these kinds of buildings? Buildings that need uh, that decision making. Yeah, actually, um, the mayor, the mayor passed a bill, I think, just last year, which um, recalled for the fitting, retrofitting of most buildings. They had to abide by certain standards. So a lot of um, landlords and a lot of developers are going to have to retrofit their building. And I think it would be more economical for them to just retrofit the building that, rather than to demolish it and build a new one that that meets um, these new standards. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I, there's it, it'll breed a whole new 
format of architecture, I'd imagine, a very kind of subtle, uh, contemporary, you know, expression that's yeah. sort of slightly hidden in between in between the drain pipes of these older looking buildings. But that's yeah. that's something that again is kind of interesting about these this value set and these priorities is it turns architects of our generation into more of um not conservationists but certainly less radically um driven artists right yeah uh, how do you how do you feel about that do you do you miss uh, having a bit of design flair and you know uh unconstrained kind of budget or do you do you enjoy being sort of hypersensitive and feeding off of uh, the constraints of, of an existing building i think uh, certain limitations can bring more creativity so uh, i'm glad to be in the like the time we are in now because we just have the the constraints can produce a lot of creative um, outcomes and i'm very interested in that however i also wouldn't have minded if like I was doing Oscar Niemeyer's era and just building purely out of interesting forms and just not not, not blissfully ignorance about um, uh, concrete and its um, and its negative like uh, carbon. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any idea what what um, what themes you want to explore for your final projects? Because I, I understand you don't have a thesis project per se, but you'll certainly finish university with a couple of projects, um, if not three or four, that um, the last one in particular, that'll, that'll, that'll act as a sort of springboard into your, into your career and, and how you re are remembered as a student by other people and, and p perhaps retrospectively yourself. So is there other goals that you have for that final project thematically? Yeah, because because last our last semester is so you pick a professor and your project is going to be somewhat in the parameters of uh, the studio. So one of the professors that I'm interested to take a studio with is uh, Ziad Jamaluddin, um, who is I would say one of the few professors in GSAP who who actually does projects and they explore non-Western um, cities. So they typically visit uh, Lebanon or Tunisia. And I think it would be a great, he's such a great architect and it would help me a lot um, because I, I've only done one real project or a couple of projects um, in the Arab world. Um, but there is a lot of specificity. So for example, a village in Tunisia, in Tunisia has its own um, environment, its own um, culture and specificity, um, and so on. So, just having the experience of someone like uh, Ziad teach me how to deal with all of the cultural um, idiosyncrasies and how to deal with such projects would be interesting. Mm. Brilliant. Do you think would you would you choose uh, f for your final project? Would you choose? Um a real case scenario or case study um, with, with the view to actually taking that project home and pitching it to a given client? Or do you want to remain more abstract and maybe more theoretical? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want something um, abstract for the last project. Um, just because it's the last project, I think I want to be able to do something where 
I would be able to actually implement it and improve people's lives through the project. Um, yeah. That's the, that's very interesting. I mean, there's definitely two camps on that. I'm, I'm in two minds myself. I would call myself uh, more of a pragmatist at the moment, let's say. I might change my mind in a few months. Um, but I've also developed this attitude towards school that's pretty, um, that's, that's forcefully unhinged. And I'm trying to be just as uh, as open as I possibly can to some of the projects that I've got at the moment. It's I find it kind of difficult because, like you said, a lot of these constraints often often um, uh, help in, in in sort of inspiring a, a, a solution to a problem. And so, for my thesis, I'm I'm in two minds: uh, whether or not I should do something that I'll never be able to do again, um, and really just you know flex that muscle um, to its to its biggest extent, um, or whether I should, you know, start funneling down and tuning into a more, I mean, you could say more mature, perhaps more realistic approach. Yeah. Yeah. I do get what you mean because there's definitely uh, like a need to take a studio that's very experimental and very abstract. Um, I think it's very useful. I, I did that in my last year at Westminster with, uh, which, which studio were you in? Studio three with uh, Professor Constance now. Oh yeah. Um, it was it was one of my toughest studio I've ever taken because, just because it was so ambiguous throughout the semester. Um, so so yeah, I think the it is important for someone to take just these very abstract experimental studios throughout their architecture um, years. Yeah. Yeah. Do you um do you think? You're a traditional, you will be uh, an architect by fairly traditional terms. Have you given that some thought? Um, it depends what you mean by traditional. Like, I I would want to be an architecture who builds, um, builds spaces, yeah. but not trained to buildings per se. Yeah. Do you think, so beyond, beyond your kind of, um, the, the design outlet that you have both smaller scale sort of, um, industrial design scale of the chair and sort of material science, but then also eventually kind of interior design and architectural scale, having the photography on the side, do you think, I mean, do you think that that has the potential to lead on to, um, other digital formats? Um, is, is the sort of virtual reality world something that interests you? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm usually kind of skeptical with these high tech things. Does it? Does it? Add, what, what does it add to the conversation? If it yeah. actually helps uh, the client or whoever visualize their space better, then yeah, maybe it's a way to go. Yeah. But um, there is a danger in these hyper-realistic renderings because it might not. It might not be actually what it is. Right. Right. And you've been writing a bit, right? And and this you'll have to tell me some more about. Yeah. Um, so I usually write with um, Interior PH magazine and more recently with Lacuna magazine, which is a, which is a, like a zine me and my friends at GSAP um, launched. Fantastic. When, do, when did you launch that? Uh, just at the end of the semester. Just at the end of the semester. Wow. So was that a kind of brainchild of uh, quarantine, maybe? Kind of, yeah. Actually, it, it did uh, start up, like it, it did begin as conversations of how architecture is going to be changed throughout quarantine and visualization and all of that. Yeah. 
So how would you summarize the, the name of your magazine is is PH Interiors Interiors PH Lacuna Design Magazine is the design is the magazine that me and my friends did. Okay. And then which is a magazine in Amman Jordan yep. that I write with that you contribute to. Um and and what what brought about this the idea of the magazine uh specifically you wanted it to be an online platform sharing ideas thoughts imagery yeah so lacuna is um lacuna means a void that's stuffed by something uh, and it was just this void of the lockdown uh public space leaving your house um the not being in school um so we kind of wanted to explore and study visualizations. It's it's hard as visualizations were, that are tied to Corona. Hmm. And is it a presentation of of student work? Is it um is it aimed at a student audience as well? Or yeah, I think it's mostly um the target audience is architecture or design students. Okay, that sounds really interesting because I mean whether it's whether it's uh, written or um, audio or you know a video, I think just making a platform that discusses openly these kinds of things is is obviously something. Well, I'm pleased you're also uh, you've also initiated. I'm really uh, impressed. Uh, that's really cool, and I'd, I'm going to check it out. I'd love to hear more about it. Um, we uh, we sort of started, a few friends and myself started this podcast, I think with similar intentions. It's obviously a very different format. But um, I think before quarantine, I still had this sense that gathering informal conversations uh, or just essentially recording conversations that I had in and around architecture school, in studio, in the lunch break, in the corridor, whatever, um, would be beneficial for someone. It's not a uh, it's not of mass public appeal. I, I get that, and it's certainly not that informative, objectively speaking. But I feel like there's a lot of um, interstitial kind of information that you know is neither here nor there, yet very um, valuable, especially for architecture students uh, thinking about where they're going to do their placement, what masters they want to specialize in, whether they even want to be an architect. Um, yeah having having completed some uh, some years of study or whether they even want to enter architectural school in the first in the first place yeah yeah exactly i was so excited when you texted me about the podcast because we're in a very critical time it's relatively unprecedented uh there's just no one really knows what's gonna go what's gonna happen in a few months or in a few years time so we're kind of it's kind of an equal playing field and just the need to get a lot of conversations going on, hearing different opinions. It's uh, something very exciting and I'm definitely going to hear all of the other podcasts that you've done with everyone. <laughs> well, um, I'll be sure to send you a link when I feel like it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're very, we're very lucky. I think, um, as you're saying, the, the time is pretty ripe for this kind of thing. But also, I've noticed, especially in Aarhus, um, uh, with the teaching group that I have, there's, there's a, a real um, energy towards students and, a, and an encouragement for, towards students that want to get initiative started up. Um, I never really saw myself as as that member of of a of a studio or of a of a class. I'm not particularly organized and don't enjoy um, 
don't enjoy the, the logistics of creating communities. <laughs> um, but it's sort of just, uh, you know, that it's, it's sort of turned out that there's uh, somewhat of a need for just gathering um, the opinions that, that a lot of a lot of people have, um, despite, you know, despite their best efforts to remain, um, you know, neutral and, and, and open minded, everybody has kind of kind of an interesting um, journey to explain and to learn from. But our school has been very supportive, which which I appreciate, um, both in terms of allocating funds to organizing the podcast and, and the equipment, but also in terms of um, getting a guest list together and inviting um, some more or less specialist people to come and, and talk. But so at the moment, I've just been trying to gather conversations with um, student friends that I have who um, have ended up dispersed all around the globe, really, and have different priority sets and are studying ultimately in very different environments. Um, do you, is, is your magazine a monthly issue? Is it an online blog format? And it was, um, it was kind of, I think, bi biweekly or monthly. Um, now we're kind of reconsidering that and seeing what time, what time scale works best for us. Yeah, it's a lot of work, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> are your are your peers quite open to expressing views? Yeah, definitely. Really? So it's quite a quite an extroverted uh class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So you have all of the you ha you have all of the journalists you need really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where can I find that uh publication, Bisha? Um on I think the easiest way for now is on Instagram, which is just lacuna design zine what is what is a zine zine is just like a, a smaller version of a magazine and i after i realized that i i thought oh well maybe the zine is it's it started as this yeah yeah clever bisha it's been a pleasure getting to catch up with you thank you very much for the time um, I'm hoping we can have another conversation that's maybe more um, focused in on, on a given topic, uh, whether it's something you would like to discuss, um, politics and architecture, a, a specific thing going on in the Arab world right now, whatever. Um, I'm always open to suggestions. And if you, I'll send you a link to the podcast as soon as possible. And if you have any contributions, um, alterations, uh, encouragement, feel free to give it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm glad I did this and I'm definitely willing to go on another time and talk about something more specifically. Fantastic. Bisha, I really appreciate it. And I hope I get to see you uh, in the next in the next year, at least. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Take care, Bisha. I will. Bye. See you. Here you go.